We have been uh, talking about the justice of God. And we've been speaking about the righteous man. Last week we opened up by talking about Plato's, Plato's Republic. uh, About how the the righteous man was described as as a person who all the accolades and all the gifts and all the presents that would be given to him would be stripped away and that the truly just man would be seen as unjust or unjust. And he would go through his whole life like that. He would go through his entire life looking unjust to people. That's what people would think about this person. And then at the very end, instead of, uh, instead of being delivered from his situation... He would die like that. Christianity is is a call to the willingness to die for our faith. And when uh, when we as Christians understand that, that that's what the Lord was called to, that's what um, he was destined to in his life, we'll really understand what true justice is all about, what the mission of Christ is all about, what Christianity is all about. We get to a place where we recognize that there was no one coming to say, Jesus, the the escape route is this way. You've been going this way, but really the, the time of testing is over and you can escape death. So you can escape the cross. You can escape obedience to the cross. You don't have to go if you don't want to. Jesus says, okay, well, thank the Lord. The time of testing is over. Now everything like Job Everything at the very end turns around before he dies. Well, what about Christ? It didn't turn around before he died. He went to his death like that. That was, that was his whole life. It was, it was uh, toil, and it was uh, him being seen as unjust, and it was him being seen as somebody who is subversive and divisive and all these different things. And then instead of being delivered at the last second, he's not delivered but he's crucified. And of course, the unjust man would go through his life being seen as just, and he's really not. You're looking forward to a person who would fulfill. Who would be that person? Who would be so resolute in the truth and resolute in his willingness to follow after what he knew was true because he was after being happy? After being happy, after being joyful, the ability to say that even though none go with me, I'll still follow. The ability to say I'm going to still follow after that which I know is right even though it's not popular for the sake of following the truth. And even if the truth takes me to my death, that's, that's the path I'll, I'll follow, not following the path of least resistance. You want to talk about a violation of rights. If there was ever a violation of rights, it's this passage in which we're in, in Mark chapter 15. It's a violation of the rights of God. How many people often think about that, the rights of God? We often think about the the rights of God. animals 
You see bumper stickers everywhere. Save this, save that, save the whale, save the monkey, save this, save that animal. We have the rights of animals. And by the way, scripture is very, very clear that we're not to be cruel to animals. This is not a a talk about it's okay then to be cruel to animals. The Bible says in Proverbs, a man who's cruel to his animals is cold, heartless. This is not talking about that. This is uh, talking about, though, animal rights, elevating them almost to divine status. It's absurd. In fact, that's exactly what Romans chapter 1 says. They didn't worship God, but they worshiped the creature instead. There was this substitution. And every... Everywhere we turn, we see that. People worshiping their pets, people worshiping animals. Strange. Then we have the worship of uh, the universe or worship of the planet. People who talk about the rights of trees and uh, the rights of uh, the waters and so on. And once again, we're called to be good stewards. We are. We're called to take care of that which God has given us, to tend this earth with respect. This is not a license to go out and just throw litter out of the car and say, well, I'm a Christian. How tragic that would be. But we have have elevated the rights of plant life and the rights of the oceans to divine status. People get angry over these things, mad over these things, mad over the trees, mad over the mountains, angry over the waters. It's injustice, they say. We need to preserve and protect the rights of the world. Then, of course, we come to human rights. Human rights, people's rights. What about our rights? We're always talking about our freedoms and what we should be able to do and how people should look at us and we should be free to do anything that we want. We should be free to go anywhere we want and do anything we want and say anything we want. That's what freedom is all about. It's the rights of the individual. It's all about me. Of course, it really doesn't matter if it's a little person in a womb. Their rights don't matter. And if a nation is uh, allowed to go long enough, we're already beginning to see the beginning of this, the rights of the elderly will also go. So people say, well, we don't care about the young, we don't care about the unborn, and the old people, what are they, what's their value to society? So once they hit a certain age and they're no longer able to work, maybe they should just go ahead and move on. Maybe we should um, euthanize them and How about the insane or the mentally handicapped or those who are dealing with all sorts of disfigurements and physical problems, maladies in their body? Well, they don't have rights. But we do have rights if we feel that we're an asset to society. As long as it's about me, human rights. Interesting, one of the major debates is over this whole thing of will, free will. It's my will about the freedom of the individual. And we'll stand up all day and we'll talk about the freedom of man, the freedom of woman, the freedom of children. 
the freedom of the will. But one thing we often do not hear in discussion, we hear it about plants, we hear it about animals, we hear it about humans, but rarely will you hear a discussion anywhere in this world about the rights of God, about his rights, about the fact that he's good and he's just and he's wise and he's sovereign and he's free to do anything that he wants because he's righteous and he's good by his very character. The rights of God. The fact that he is free. The fact that he is marvelous. The fact that he is beautiful. There's no one like him. We'll defend all of these other rights before we ever get to thinking about the rights of a holy and righteous and sovereign God. Why is that? Why is it that we are rights of so many different things, but we do not talk about the rights of this majestic righteous one who has come in the face of Jesus Christ, the rights of God? And really that's what this passage is about. It's about this absurd trial where the God-man is put on trial, where he is tested and he is tried. We feel question God. God, why did you do this? We often blame God. Why did you put me in this situation? We feel uh, free to judge him. We feel right to say things about him. We feel right to curse him. People curse the name of God all the time. We can talk about him. We can malign him. Our desire is even to put him on trial. That's exactly what's going on. The rights of God are being violated. The rights of God are being harassed. The rights of God are being manipulated and brutalized and abused. Our God is righteous. You know, one thing we never have to worry about is, is who's, who's better whole discussion about will and free will, who's more loving? Maybe it's us as humans, we're more loving. No, no. When set against a holy God, listen, we are hateful and spiteful and petty. And then you put us and you juxtapose us or you compare us with God who is righteous and full of love and has done nothing in his entire existence, which is eternal there's no comparison god is full of love and we are not god is full of goodness and we are not full of goodness and yet we question this we question the rights of god we desire to put god on trial god if i could try you if i could argue with you if i could sit in to tell you about my life and what i'm going through how dare you put me in this kind of situation I remember one time a a story was of a person who said, you know, if God really knew what it was like down here, if God really knew what it was like, if he really knew what we were going through, if he knew the suffering in my life and the injustice in my life, the things that were things, here's what he would do. He would come down here. he He would become one of us. And then he would live a life of complete suffering. He would live a life of tragedy. People would see him as unjust and he would, 
he would bear awful circumstances and go through life misunderstood and mistreated and people wouldn't see him rightly or fairly. God really knew what I was going through. That's what he would do. He'd come down here, he'd put on skin and he'd go through what I'm going through. And he would suffer all of this and then his own family would reject him. People say, I, I've been through circumstances when my own family has rejected us. Friends, the closest of friends. That's what he would go through. His friends would stand aloof, would reject him. His closest of family members would reject him. That's what God would do if he were fair, if he were just. He'd come down here and you would do all of that. He doesn't understand. And listen, sometimes we cry. We say, God, where are you? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you understand the pain? Listen, everybody in this room has been in that kind of situation where you've cried out to God and you've said, God, where are you, Drew? It's easy to come in and not talk in terms like that. But listen, every person in this room has felt that. Every person has gone through that, that questioning of wondering where is God and why were circumstances allowed in this life? Why was I allowed to be born at this time? And why was I... Uh, uh, taught these things and why did I go here and why were these decisions made so this person said if he were to be fair and to understand us he would come down he'd go through all these different situations and then that wouldn't be the end of his life because like so many people who are not delivered from their life of uh, pain and uh, suffering he would die He wouldn't just die any death, but he would die that was unfair and unrighteous and unjust. And of course, we know that that's exactly what happened. That that's what God did. If you want to know what God is like, listen, don't ever separate God from Jesus. Jesus is God. If you want to know what God is really like in his very nature, in his very character, All you need to do is look at Jesus and you'll see an accurate portrait. You will see a complete, not an incomplete. It's not God the Father is up in heaven one way and God the Son is down on earth and he's a little bit different. If you want to know what God is exactly like, if you want to know the character and the nature of the Father, all you have to do is look at Jesus. This is why Jesus came. And he could say this, I know what you're going through. I know. I know, I've been there. I've done that. But Jesus didn't go through this life unjustly. Righteous and perfect. And yet he was judged unfairly. If you want an accurate picture of God, it's righteous, he's full of love, he's full of tenderness, his tenderness is over all of the works that he does, his loving kindness taints everything that he's involved with. He's good. This is a right and accurate picture of who God is. If you go with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Genesis 18, verse 25 says this. 
Far be it to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Far be it, God, from you to judge the righteous with the wicked. You don't get them mixed up. Here's an accurate picture of who God is as a judge. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Accurate picture of who God is in his judgment. It's shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Let's never forget that in any situation in life. Everything you do, God, is just. Everything you say is just. Everything that comes from your character is holy and righteous and just. You've never done anything that is... The the way that we think about God, the thoughts that go through our head when we think about God, those thoughts are manifested in the way that we treat Christ. What you really think about God is manifested in the way that you treat Christ. If you treat penitent heart, then you treat God well. If you reject God, you reject Christ. And Christ was hated without cause. In fact, that's exactly what the scripture says. If you go to Psalm chapter 35, Psalm chapter 35, Psalm chapter 35, verse 19. Psalm 35, verse 19 says this. Let not those uh, rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye, and here it is, who hate me without cause. Why was... Why was Jesus going through this whole trial? What was, what was the reason? There was their own sin, their own desire to put him on trial without cause, hated without cause. You want to talk about evil. It's bad enough to twist something that's halfway true. It's completely wicked and holy and totally perverse to try somebody without cause. Go with me over to Psalm chapter 69, verse 4. Psalm chapter 69. Psalm chapter Verse 4, Psalm chapter 69, verse 4 says this, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. This is Christ being put on trial without cause. There is no reason. What's the deep reason that they were putting Christ on trial? Why were they actually do? Here's what he did. He did nothing. He did nothing, and yet he was put on a completely false trial. Those who hate me without cause, mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? That's the question. Of course, that would be fulfilled in the life of Christ. If in verse 25, John 15 John chapter 15, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be the the words that we just read in the two Psalms. They must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So the whole reason that Christ goes on trial is 
for no reason except their own manipulations, their own vicious intentions. And they will be judged. Seat. They will be judged themselves, not just for coming to a wrong judgment, but for having the trial at all. In other words, someday when people stand before the Lord and the Lord is sitting there in judgment of the nations, and he gathers those wrong decision, a wrong verdict, he's going to judge them for putting his Lord, for putting the Messiah, for putting the Christ on trial at all. The whole thing was a sin. To even put Christ on trial, to bring him up on phony charges, it was all evil, it was all wicked, and it was all foolish. Standing before corrupt judges, Pilate, the governor, is sick and tired of Christ. Christ is standing there listening to all that is going on. He says a few things, but for the remainder of his talk with Pilate, he's just standing there silent, taking in all of these lies, all of these accusations. He's just letting... And Pilate um, hears that Herod is in town. Herod Antipas, he was the same nice fellow that had um, cut the head off of John the Baptist. He was the head of Galilee. He happened to be down in Jerusalem for the festival, for Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, our text here in Mark 15 doesn't record it, but Herod's temple that Pilate was staying in, that was Herod the Great's temple, Herod Antipas' father, says, so why don't I send Jesus over and he can go over and he can uh, talk to Herod? And Herod had long wanted to see Jesus for him to produce some kind of miracle so that he could just clap his hands and go, wow, wow, Jesus, wow, that's pretty impressive. You are. So Pilate says, I'm going to send him over and let Herod have a look at him. If you go over to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23 tells us what happened here as Jesus is sent over to Herod, it says in verse uh, 6 of Luke chapter 20 from Galilee, Pilate was a vicious man, but he really didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He was tired of this whole thing. And it says in verse 7, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So you have Pilate, who's normally from Caesarea. He's in Jerusalem. You also have Herod. He's from Galilee. He's in Herod saw Jesus. He was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard of him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Jesus, will you perform for me? Will you do some trick? Will you do some kind of miracle? And he questions him here in verse 9 at length, but he makes no answers. The Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Here's the king of glory being mocked and they arrayed him in a splendid clothing and he sent him back to Pilate. So here Pilate is. He has Jesus for some time. Then he sends him over to Herod. And Herod's thinking, well, this is, this is great. I get to see Jesus. I'd long wanted to see him. And perhaps he can do some kind of me. Of course, Jesus does not oblige him. And so Jesus is sent back over to Pilate. Pilate is trying to figure out what does 
you do with Christ. And at this time, the crowd is starting to ask for a tradition that had happened at the Passover time. And by the way, this is only recorded in the Gospels. We don't have, obviously, the truth. We have an example of something like this from Egypt in the later first century of where a governor released a prisoner. But we have no record of this kind of tradition from any Jewish historical resources, but we do have it here in the gospel. Now, notice what happens here in Mark chapter 15. God, the God-man, ends up being less important than the current government. Verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner. Wow, what a practice. So during the feast, you have the Passover feast, Pilate would come around and say, empire, insurrectionist, and so on. We'll release one of them back to you. So what he's saying is, we'll take somebody from the jail. You like if the mayor of Wilkes-Barre had the power and the authority, we go to him, and every year he releases for us somebody from the local prison. Can you imagine what an unjust practice, but that's what's going on. Release for them one prisoner for whom, them, for whom they asked And among the rebels in prison, this is a bad fella who had committed murder in the insurrection. So evidently there's some kind of uprising against the Roman government and they had caught this man. By the way, Barabbas simply means son of the father. He was possibly the son of some kind of Jewish teacher. We don't really know. He might have been the son of a rabbi. But he was an insurrectionist. And so the crowd is coming up. They're not concerned about the rights of Jesus at all. They're concerned about the current governmental, the current political climate to do as he usually did for them. So here's the crowd's opportunity. Jesus is being mocked. Jesus has been put on trial. He's been questioned all night by the religious authorities. And he's been questioned by Pilate. And he's been questioned... By Herod, and now the crowd is going to turn against him. Listen, everybody is, they all hated me without cause. Nobody is considering his rights. This is all a sham. This is all phony. And yet Christ is standing there going through all of this. And now the crowd comes up and says, hey, Pilate, you know that annual tradition we have where you release a prisoner? We have one that uh, we think would be a good candidate for this year's release. Would you release to us the insurrectionist, this man who has caused an uprising? Would you release this guy to us? We'll take him. We'll, we'll take Barabbas, son of the father. That's who, that's who we want. Now, Pilate is, Pilate's thinking about this. He has Jesus, and he's, he's, been, he's been questioning Jesus. Jesus, and she said, listen, I just had a horrible dream about this whole situation, about this man. She says, please, Pilate, have nothing to do with this man. Just, just, Pilate, just, just get rid of the whole situation. I have been tormented. I've been troubled all night because of what has been going on with Christ. So Pilate is think arrogant. So then he asks the question, verse 9, and he answers them saying, 
do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, there would have been some scorn in this, some mocking. He wasn't really saying that he was the king of the Jews. He was just saying that to needle them. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had over because of a true crime. The chief priests hated the goodness in Christ. That's what envy is. Envy is when a person cannot stand the goodness or the righteousness in another. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're just saying, he's good, he's righteous, we know he is, but we can't stand him. We can't stand this, uh, this person in our laws. And Pilate perceived that. Pilate knew what was going on. He knew the, the reason that Jesus had been delivered up. It wasn't because he had broken any law. He knew that he was not a threat to the Roman government. But the chief priest, verse 11, stirred up the crowd to have him released for them. Barabbas instead, this man that you call the king of the Jews. So now the the question is laid before them. Who do you want? You can have Barabbas, the insurrectionist and the murderer. You can take him. And probably in his thought process, he's thinking that's that's not what they're going for. Or you can take the king of the, the Jews, that's Christ. Who do you want? You can have Barabbas or you can have... Jesus, the scribes and the religious leaders, they stir the crowd up and the crowd begins to say, we want Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. We want the murderer. We want Christ to be taken care of. So Pilate asks the question, okay, well, so I, but what do you want me to do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? Christ is being used by a as a pawn, he's being used as a pawn by the political leaders. He's being used as a pawn by the religious leaders. And the crowd begins to chant and cry out in unison, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What, what evil has he done? Crucifixion is one of the worst ways to die, but they shouted all the more. This is a mob mentality. The religious leaders are stirring them up and they are not unguilty. They are also guilty for what they are saying and what they are doing. Crowds can be so, perhaps all the same people, perhaps some of the same people were involved. But the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest as Jesus rides in on a donkey that same week, earlier that week. Now they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What does he do? By the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, the Jews had a limit, 39 lashes, how many lashes they could lash a person. This was a whip with leather thongs on it, and at the end of the whip would be pieces of... uh, He had no law, so they would whip the person for as long as their strength held out. And usually they would have two men who would be whipping the person on either side, and they would bind their hands up to a post like this, and then they would take turns scourging him, hitting him in the back as hard as he could, and so badly. And by the way, many people that go through this kind of scourging, they die. Many of them would die. Christ, Christ made it through the scourging. He makes it through the beating. But he was beaten so bad, so badly, 
that he was beaten beyond recognition. Many of us have seen the truth is he could have even gone further till he was beaten to the point of where you couldn't even recognize him. So Pilate says, this is all wickedness, this is all foolishness, this is all evil. The judge of the earth will do right. And here he is, the God-man is on trial. They beat him as hard as they can. For his... He releases to them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. the rights of God. If there was ever anything that was done that was wicked and evil, it was this. The most heinous sin, the most evil, grievous thing that's ever happened. The just man seen as unjust would die in the hands of wicked men. Now, if we are born as sinners and unrighteous and unloving and all of the things that we've talked about. And we go through our whole life like that. And we see God as unjust and we put him on trial. How do we ever come to the point of where we see Jesus Christ for who he really is? And the only way that we ever do is when we come to a place in our heart, listen carefully, where we recognize him as Lord where we come to a place in our heart where we don't just say, Jesus, you're a good guy, you're a nice man. But the point of our life when we come to see the just, the justice of, and we say to him, Lord, you are righteous and you are holy. I bend the knee to you. I, I bow the knee to you. And I declare with my lips, this is what the rest of the New Testament would declare, that Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. Let's say that again. Jesus is Lord. Sometimes when we think about this text, our eyes get filled with tears because we begin to go, this is so unjust. And we defend. There's something within us that wants to defend Christ. What, what is that? That's the spirit of God stirring within us a hunger for the truth, a hunger for real justice. And so we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I surrender everything.